Well, as you know, as we come to this particular Lord's Day evening, uh, we spend some time in the Word in order to direct our prayers. And so, uh, as you see in your prayer sheet, our prayer focus this evening is zeal for holiness and sanctification. <clears throat> I have been uh, on this particular Lord's Day evening during our corporate prayer time, been speaking on the subject of godly, holy, sacred zeal. And I've been using this book by Joel Beakey and James A. LaBelle uh, called Living Zealously as sort of an outline of some things that we've been talking about. Um, and it comes primarily from Romans 12, verse 11. It says, Not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. And recently in Titus chapter 2, as we've been reading through that chapter and going through it verse by verse, verse 14 says that he gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. And so far as we've been talking about zealousness, we've spoken of the marks of Christian zeal. What are the marks of Christian zeal? The motivations of Christian zeal. The regulation of Christian zeal. And then last time I led corporate prayer, which was in October, uh, we began considering the objects of Christian zeal. What things should we be zealous for? And we named four of them. Again, in the book Living Zealously, uh, they identify four things about which the believer should be zealous. And those four things are glorifying God, growing in holiness, strengthening the saints, and saving the lost. Glorifying God, that is, we should be zealous for the glory of God. Growing in holiness, we should be zealous for our sanctification. Strengthening the saints, we should be zealous for the church of Jesus Christ. And then saving the lost, we should be zealous for the proclamation of the gospel and making disciples. And actually, Pastor Devon last month, who led corporate prayer, touched on this and focused on this zeal for the lost, the compassion of our Savior for those who, did not, who do not know Christ. And, <clears throat> and therefore, we prayed in light of those things. But we considered last time in October... Uh, the zealousness the Christian should have for the glory of God. What is the chief end of man? As the Catechism says, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. We should be zealous for the glory of God. We're to pray, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. And so last time we considered that subject of the believer's zeal for the glory of God. But this evening, we want to consider a second object of Christian zeal, and that is growing in holiness, our sanctification. <clears throat> when the sinner is saved by God's grace, made alive in Christ, born again by the work of the Holy Spirit, and comes to faith in Christ, his sin is in view. No one comes to Christ as Savior without a knowledge of his sin against God. The sinner is convinced of just that, that he's a sinner, a great sinner, and that his sins deserve the just and righteous wrath of Almighty God. 
the sinner convicted by the law of God is convicted of his guilt before God. The sinner, by means of the gospel, is then brought to faith in Christ and repentance toward sin. Once loving his sin, he now sees it for what it is, against God who is holy, holy, holy. Convicted by the law of God and broken over his sin, the sinner turns to the righteous one, the spotless and sinless one, the Lamb of God. He turns to him in faith, resting on him alone for the forgiveness of sin. And the sinner is saved, rescued from what his sins deserve. His sins are forgiven, those sins having been imputed to Christ. The righteousness of Christ imputed to his account. But having been convinced of his unrighteousness and convinced of the righteousness of the Savior, having been born again to see this and believe this, the sinner's conviction of sin does not end. Once blinded to his sin, now the justified sinner sees his sin as clearly as ever. His affections and desires have been changed by the grace of God. He now has a holy hatred of sin. And out of love for God, the justified sinner now wants to glorify his heavenly Father by living according to his moral will. Therefore, having been declared righteous positionally before God, he now has a passion for practical holiness. Rejoicing in his justification, he now is on a pursuit, a pursuit of practical holiness, known biblically as sanctification. I said that the, the sinner is on a pursuit. He's not content with justification by grace alone. His desire is now for sanctification. He pursues it. And this is wrought by the grace of God. His relationship to sin is now changed. And he begins to understand that from the scriptures. So he wants to live that out. Sin is no longer his master. So he desires to live in light of the fact that he not only has been buried with Christ and united with the saving benefits of Christ's death, but he also desires to practically live in light of the truth that he has been raised with Christ to walk in newness of life. This is Romans chapter 6. We have been united with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. We have been raised with him that we might walk in newness of life. I remember it wasn't quite maybe like with the passion of what uh, you would see of Martin Luther as we spoke of that earlier. But I remember with, with passion reading Romans chapter 6 as a young believer in college and in reading Romans 6 and now my eyes illumined by the Spirit to understand even more of the saving benefits of Christ, even more of the blessings, the spiritual blessings that I had in Christ. In reading Romans 6, wrestling with sin, I understood that it says that sin shall no longer be your master. And that I was to now stop presenting my, the members of my body as instruments of sin. And, and I had been freed by God's grace to now say no to sin and yes to righteousness. For I have been united with my Savior. And this changed really my Christian walk at that point. Gaining that knowledge of, 
my union with Christ gave me even more of a zeal to battle sin and put it to death by the grace of God. As believers, we come to that knowledge and in our zeal for holiness doesn't decrease because of the grace of God, it increases. And so, once having a zeal for sinning as an unbeliever, the justified sinner now has a zeal for killing sin, putting sin to death by the grace and power of God. Once having an appetite for sin, the justified sinner now has an appetite for holiness. And again, this is wrought by God. As it says in 1 Peter 2, verses 2 and 3, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. So hungering and longing for the word, the believer feeds on the word. And this fans the flames of holiness even more. In the book, Living Zealously, listen to this quote. It's an extended quote, but it's very helpful. It says, God's Word teaches, first of all, what we are to believe concerning God. So, sacred zeal begins its work in us by inflaming our desire to know God and His Word. Compelled by zeal, we pursue Christ in all the appointed means of grace, longing to see Christ revealed in His Word, longing to hear Christ in the preaching of His Word, honoring Christ as Lord on the Sabbath day, joining with Christ to sing praise to our God in the midst of His church, availing ourselves of Christ's high priestly ministry by coming boldly to His throne of grace in prayer and feeding on Christ in the Lord's Supper. Sacred zeal makes us unsatisfied with how little we know when we come to Christ. It increases our desire to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, 2 Peter 3.18, and to mature from being children in the faith to becoming young men and eventually spiritual fathers, 1 John 2, verses 12-14. It makes us yearn to profit from the milk of the Word, so that we might go on to enjoy the strong meat of the mature, Hebrews 5, 13 and 14, becoming not only a teacher of others, but also, most of all, an example to others. Sacred zeal also compels us to labor for better knowledge of our duty, so that nothing that our Lord requires of us may be left undone for clear direction on our practice so that what must be done will be done well. Sacred zeal compels us for fuller instruction in the truths of the gospel that we might always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in us, for firmer persuasion of God's truth so that we might zealously contend for the faith once delivered unto the saints, for a more forcible influence of God's word upon our souls, that we might not be conformed to the world, but transformed by the renewing of our mind. In other words, our zeal for knowledge stems from our zeal for holiness. So his point is, we're hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And therefore, we want the Word of God, for it feeds that desire even more. It informs us about how that holiness takes place, and it strengthens the soul. It says, in some, 
The sacred zeal that is a flame in the heart of a Christian desires complete adaptation and conformity to the one whom we love. Zeal's filial love for God is so great and zeal's desire for God's glory is so great that such zeal will accept nothing short of conformity to His will. It therefore strives by all the means of grace to dress itself to the beloved's liking. Listen, no duty is too costly that zeal will not take it up. And no earthly desire is so lovely that it will not be given up to please the Lord. Listen to that again. No duty is too costly that zeal will not take it up. And no earthly desire is so lovely that it will not be given up to please the Lord. Sacred zeal will not rest with a modicum of Christian duty, but neither will it cohabit with the smallest known sin. For it cannot be for duties which are pleasing to God without being against sins that are displeasing to Him. In its ardent desire to be completely adapted to the Beloved, sacred zeal cannot bear any lack of conformity, but loads and laments it, desiring nothing more than to part ways, whatever the cost, with any sin that mars its beauty and displeases its Lord. This is what, again, many years ago, as a young Christian, I heard John MacArthur preaching on the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And he called it divine discontent. And that stuck with me through the years, that of all the things you've heard me say, of all the, we should be content about all things except this. There's a divine discontent wrought in us by God that we should never be content with where we are spiritually, that we should long for more righteousness. I remember John MacArthur saying those days about something called the partitive genitive, something I had no knowledge of or understanding of, something in Greek in which he said that, that there was a manner in which they would speak of hungering and thirsting for something, but not all of it, but only part of it. So you hunger and thirst for not all the righteousness there is, but just for some. When you hunger and thirst for water, you don't want all the food and all the water there is in the world, but just part of it. But when it comes to the Christian life, there's not part of it that you desire. You desire it all. You hunger and thirst for all the righteousness that you can have. You want more and more and more. And that Zeal is not satisfied. That zeal for holiness is not satisfied until you're with the Lord Jesus, till you see Him face to face. For then we will be like Him. For we shall see Him just as He is. Again, listen to these words. No duty is too costly that zeal will not take it up. And no earthly desire is so lovely that it will not be given up to please the Lord. This should be the heart of the zealous Christian, zealous for holiness. No duty is too costly. Jesus said, if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. 
And some might hear that, and, and of course, he doesn't mean it literally, but he's using that language of what some have called radical amputation, spiritually speaking. That if your right eye makes you stumble, there's, there's nothing too costly that a zealousness for God and His glory and a zealousness for holiness will not take it up. It's not extreme to, spiritually speaking, to tear it out and throw it from you. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. No duty is too costly that zeal will not take it up. Jesus said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. Some would hear those words and say, that duty is too costly. They wanted to follow Jesus for things other than what he came to to grant to sinners. And that call, if you wish to come after me, here's what you must do. Here's what is of necessity. It's not an option. You must deny yourself. Some would say that's too costly. But for the believer, zealous for God, zealous for His glory, and zealous for holiness, denying oneself is not too costly. It is a delight. And you must take up your cross, Jesus said. Again, what did that mean? It means you must be willing to die. This is what it means to follow me. But the Christian says, that's not too costly. Again, that's a delight. And there's no earthly desire that's so lovely that it will not be given up in order to please the Lord. Moses would say amen to that. For the scripture says, by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward, Hebrews 11 Verses 24 to 26. There's no earthly desire so lovely that it will not be given up. Moses was faced with this, the riches, the treasures of Egypt. And it was all his. He could be the the son of Pharaoh's daughter and he could continue in that position. It would mean power. It would mean prestige. It would mean pleasures that the world could offer and The pleasures of Egypt, the sinful pleasures of Egypt, all those things were his. But in comparison to Christ, he would be willing to give it up. No duty is too costly. That godly Christian zeal will not take it up. And no duty... Excuse me, no earthly desire is so lovely that it will not be given up to please its Lord. This was the Apostle Paul when he said, Therefore, we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to the Lord. This is holy zeal. I want to please Him. I want to 
glorify Him. I want sin to be put to death. Again, in the book, Living Zealously, it says this, Sacred zeal sees nothing more contrary to its enjoyment of God, communion with God, and conformity to God than sin. Sin is the enemy, the power in the world most opposed to God. Therefore, sacred zeal hates sin. Puritan John Reynolds said that sacred zeal, quote, looks upon sin as the greatest, foulest, worst of evils. Its aspect, therefore, toward sin is that of hatred. It hates the name and nature of it, the motions of it within, the temptations to it from without. Such opposition to it, that is to sin, is intimated and enjoyed in what we call in Psalm, what, in what, in that call in Psalm 97 verse 10, ye that love the Lord hate evil. The more you love him, the more inclined you will be to hate evil. It stands in fullest contradiction to your Lord, to his will and law and glory. It is malignant to your soul, destructive to your delightful conversation with the Lord. And so Joel Beakey writes, Zeal must strive to put off all known sin. For by God's grace, it will not strive in vain. In this we can find no better comfort and encouragement than the promise of God to sanctify us wholly by abiding by the abiding, mortifying, vivifying presence of His own Spirit within us. Listen to Ezekiel 36, verses 27 to 29. He says it should deepen our zeal to pursue conformity to God. For it shall be our hours in the end. I will put my Spirit within you. And cause you to walk in my statutes. And you shall keep my judgments and to do them. And you shall be my people. And I will be your God. And I will save you from all your uncleanness. See, the promise of God in the new covenant is he puts his spirit within us. He causes us to walk in his statutes. He is the source of that desire for holiness. That zealousness to put sin to death. This is the work of God. George Swinnick defined a godly man in this way. Not by the absence of sin in his heart, but by his unequivocal aversion to the sin that remains there. Again, get this. What, what makes a man a godly man? We can't say what's simply the absence of sin. We always have remaining corruption. We still fall short of the glory of God. But a godly man is defined by his unequivocal aversion to the sin that still remains. It is our zeal to reflect God's glory in our own lives that engenders an aversion to all sin that we find in ourselves. And so George Swinnick wrote this. In a godly man's heart, Though some sin be left, yet no sin be liked. In his life, though sin may remain, yet no sin reigns. His heart is suitable to God's nature, and his life is answerable to God's law. And thence he is fitly denominated a godly man. Listen, a godly man is one who has an aversion, a holy hatred for sin. 
And so he is at war with sin. He fights against sin by the grace of God. He lays hold of the promises of God in the new covenant. He lays hold of the truths that the Spirit of God indwells me and the Spirit of God is at work in me to accomplish this work of sanctification. God is at work in me both to will and to work for His good pleasure. And so a godly man is not one who is without sin, but one who is battling sin, who hates sin. Then he be called a godly man. We just sang, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my riches gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. The root of all sin being pride. At the cross, we, we have a holy aversion against it. We pour contempt upon it. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast. Save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things of the world. All the vain things. All the sin that charm me most. I sacrifice them to His blood. I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. Christ loved us and died for us. And so we sing, See from His head, His hands, His feet, Sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet? Or thorns compose so rich a crown? So the response of the Christian is, We're the whole realm of nature mine. That were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Everything. A zealousness for holiness to please the Lord in all respects. (coughs) Brethren, as I've said often before, this is the normal Christian life. Sometimes we think, oh, Taking up your cross and following Him, denying yourself, that's for some who are really disciples of Christ. No, this is the normal Christian life. We all have the Spirit of God if we're in Christ. This is what the Spirit of God is doing. This is one of the promises of the new covenant. Again, we have to fan the flames of this zeal for holiness by hungering for the Word. But this is the normal Christian life. It's a battle. A lifelong battle. But it's the work of God's grace. And so, as Matthew Henry said, God gives the whole ability. It is the grace of God which inclines the will to do that which is good and enables us to perform it. And so we want to pray this evening, in light of this, that there would be a greater zeal for the The holiness that has been ordained by God for us. This work of sanctification. And so what I want us to do as we begin our time of prayers, let's just focus on this for just a brief season, and then we'll talk about some other things to pray for. But men, I would ask you to plead with God in light of these things. Men, lift up your voices to the Lord and lead us in prayer. Go to the throne of grace and let us plead for a greater zeal for holiness, a greater hatred of sin and sanctification among the people of God to the glory 
of our Savior. Men, let's bow our heads together and all of us let's, as we hear these things and please pray so that we all can hear you and let's intercede for one another in this regard and pray in light of these things. Father in heaven, we thank you for the work that you have done in us. Not only for us, but in us. Thank you for the Spirit who indwells us. The Spirit that is active in the life of those that have been born again. Thank you for the promise of the new covenant. That the indwelling Spirit would be at work in order to cause us to walk in your statutes. Father, I pray that we would hunger and thirst for more and more righteousness. And the more righteousness, practically, that we see wrought in our lives, may it Lord, give us more and more of a hunger and an appetite for more and more righteousness. Hungering continually, thirsting continually for more and more. And Father, I pray that on the other side there would be a holy aversion and hatred of sin. And Father, I pray for each of us tonight that if we're believers that we would indeed see this fruit of salvation in our lives that where there is a battle against sin. Once where there was no battle and we bowed the knee to sin. Now we bow the knee to King Jesus. For we have been set free from sin's power. And so I pray, fathers, that we would see in our life this battle. And that that would actually strengthen us instead of discourage us. That it would strengthen us and cause us to, Lord, have assurance that the Spirit indeed indwells us. For we have a hatred of sin and a desire for holiness. And that there is a battle. For if there is no spirit and only the flesh, and we walk in the flesh and are in the flesh, then there is no battle. So Father, I pray whatever sins that each of us are specifically and even peculiarly struggling with as believers, Lord, increase our holy hatred of that and increase godly desires and a desire for your word that we might know from your word how we might grow in sanctification, how we might be in conformity to your will in that particular area or areas of our lives in which we wrestle and struggle. Father, I pray that there would be a zealousness for holiness. Lord, that stems from the work of Christ for us in his saving work, in his life in His death, and in His resurrection. God, do this among us and in us for Your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.